0: Welcome to In That Case, my name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of litigation which have shaped Australian public life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and I'd encourage you if you are getting the podcast from either of those sources to rate and review, it'll help others find the podcast. Uh, you can also find the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. I want to talk today about a case which involved the highly topical issues of the systemic social disadvantage experienced by many Aboriginal people in Australia and the question of sentencing for criminal offending. And both of those uh, were looked at closely by the High Court in the case of William Bugmy. William Bugmy had been uh, on remand for some offences with which he'd been charged. And while he was on remand, he committed serious assaults against prison officers. He threw some balls at some prison officers, one of which caught a prison officer in the eye and the prison officer ended up losing the sight in that eye. When William Bugme came on for sentencing before the New South Wales District Court, uh, the District Court was taken to his personal history, which was extraordinarily uh, traumatic. And... The District Court judge, relying in part on a case called Fernando, gave him a non-parole period of four years and three months. Now, Fernando was a sentencing decision in which the New South Wales Supreme Court had recognised and in sentencing had taken into account the profound disadvantage experienced by the Aboriginal community from which the defendant in that case had come. And so, in some ways, it was a case which indicated that there should be some specific recognition in sentencing of the plight of people in disadvantaged Aboriginal communities. So the same sorts of issues came up in William Bugmy's case, which would go all the way to the High Court. I spoke to Felicity Graham, now a barrister, but previously an employee of the Aboriginal Legal Service in New South Wales, and asked her how she came to be involved in William Bugmy's case.. <music>
1: So I worked at the Aboriginal Legal Service as a solicitor in Western New South Wales between 2009 and 2015. I'd been working in Sydney at the Supreme Court for a judge there before that and headed out to Dubbo in 2009 for my first gig as a solicitor. And then I worked a couple of years in the Broken Hill office and then back to Dubbo for another few years where I managed that office and then was the Western Zone trial advocate and then principal legal officer. I came across William um, in my time out at Broken Hill where I was working with my colleague Christian Hearn and um, he uh, and another colleague, Stephen Lawrence, were originally uh, representing William in these proceedings which became sentence proceedings in the district court after he pleaded guilty um, but one of the great things about working at the ALS is that solicitors and field officers work really collaboratively on all their cases that come through the door and so even when you're not the advocate appearing in a case behind the scenes is a real team effort, workshopping arguments, discussing strategies for a case um, and that was especially the case when I worked with Christian in the Broken Hill office. It was a small remote office far away from um, other colleagues. There were only um, two or three solicitors there at a time we were travelling every couple of weeks on circuit to Wulcanyar, Wentworth, which is just near Mildura, um, Baller-Ranald, and there were plenty of kilometres to talk about our cases and, and craft arguments about them. One of the aspects of working at the ALS is that you really have a privilege in terms of um, being able to meet um, people and learn about their life experiences, experiences that um, are much different to um, what I had experienced growing up and um, studying and uh, going to university and so on and becoming a lawyer. Um, At the time that I was uh, working at the ALS, I was also studying a master's, ...at Melbourne Law School and one of the subjects I did there was taught by Brian Stevenson. He's an American lawyer, social justice advocate, has done a lot of work around the death penalty and he heads up the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama. And he taught a course called Criminal Law, Poverty and Justice, which inevitably concerned issues of race and poverty and how the criminal justice system operates to disproportionately affect black people in America... Um, and learning from Brian Stevenson had a really big influence on me, and it was fundamental in crafting some of the arguments in William's case in relation to sentencing and Aboriginality in an age of mass imprisonment. But one of the things that he taught us was about the importance of storytelling, developing a narrative, um, being a voice for... Your client and of getting really close to injustice and to suffering to be able to confront it, to understand the nuances of what changes are required, and also to obtain a better perspective about those, um, those things in our community like injustice, like suffering, and then how you can go about being part of a system to um, improve. situation so working at the ALS working on Williams case really allowed me an opportunity to do that to get close to injustice get close to disadvantage and suffering get close to an experience um, that many unfortunately Aboriginal people in our country experience and then try and understand how the criminal justice system can operate better for those people. As I mentioned, he was 29 at the time of the offending. He um, had experienced a history of family separation. He um, had an experience of uh, being exposed to brutal domestic violence and serious alcohol abuse from a very early age. Uh, he had his own personal experience of drug and alcohol abuse um, throughout his life. The majority of his immediate family were either uh, deceased or in jail. He had a complex mental ill health, including a schizophreniform type illness. Uh, he'd in his still quite short uh, life, made a number of suicide attempts. He uh, couldn't read or write and had limited prior employment. He lived in an environment where he experienced over-policing, a very small community but with a high police presence and experience negative contact with authority figures throughout his life, not only personally, but in his community. He had a long criminal history and all of the offences that he'd been dealt with up until um, the offences that ended up in the High Court were dealt with before a magistrate and many of them involved offences committed against the police. He, um, notwithstanding his his ongoing issues with um, alcohol abuse and drug abuse, he'd never been to a rehabilitation program before. His um, first experience um, being locked up was when he was only 12 and thereafter um, regularly experienced being locked up and... um, even the first offence that he committed as an adult, he was sentenced to imprisonment. So he um, had certainly experienced the, the harshness of the criminal justice system from a young age and, and throughout his life.
0: After the New South Wales District Court imposed its sentence on William Bagmy, The prosecution appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeal. It argued that the sentence imposed on William Bugme was manifestly inadequate. And in respect of the traumatic personal history that he'd had, uh, the prosecution argued, and the court accepted, that that kind of traumatic personal history should be given diminishing credit over time that as a person's criminal offending went on, they were entitled to less and less recognition of the social disadvantage that they'd experienced.
1: William was on remand in Broken Hill Jail in early 2011, and that's when he um, committed the offences of threatening and assaulting the prison officers. My first involvement in court in the case was the first appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeal and then I was involved in the High Court and then back in the the Court of Criminal Appeal for the second time. And when uh, the matter came before the Court of Criminal Appeal for the first occasion, that was in front of Justices Hoban, Johnson and Schmidt and I was appearing for William instructing the public defender, Dina Yehia SC, who's now a district court judge in New South Wales. And Dina had, of course, worked out west in the Aboriginal Legal Service in the 1990s for many years and knew the communities in Broken Hill and Moolcania and Burke and Brewarrina and so on very well. One of my really distinct memories from that courtroom is that during argument, Justice Cliff Hoban said, I think the situation with Fernando, which was the case that... Um, had been often cited in relation to sentencing Aboriginal offenders up until um, Bugmy came down. He said, I, I think the situation with Fernando is that with a first offender or someone in the early stages of offending, it's a powerful consideration. But when you've got a list of offences and a history such as the current respondent has, Mr Bugney, uh, one can't help wondering how many times one can cash that cheque before it runs out. And that, um, that remark was mirrored in the tone of the Crown submissions in the Court of Criminal Appeal where they submitted that in an age of rational choice, it cannot be the case that Fernando provides the respondent with a, quote, ace to be played by him to ameliorate penalty in what his record shows to be a continuing history of offending. And that, that remark by... Justice Hoban and the submission by the Crown um, really struck me because, for me, the idea that William's experience of victimhood as a child, um, his extreme deprivation throughout his life across a range of different factors, the idea that that could be characterised as an ace in a hand of cards or a cheque of money is immediately confronting and offensive. It seems or seemed to me to reveal a lack of understanding about the life experience of less privileged members of our community, but it's more deeply flawed because um, as an expression of sentencing principle, it's anathema to the flexibility and sensitivity to difference that is deeply embedded in properly understood sentencing law. However crude, ultimately, the tools of sentencing are in terms of imprisonment uh, and depriving people of their liberty. So that was something that really struck me uh, in terms of the approach at that stage of the proceedings. Some might think that William Bugney's case was um, a test case, um, but to the extent that it was, it was really accidental because we never would have ended up in the High Court without um, the matter first coming up to the Court of Criminal Appeal as a Crown Appeal, where they sought to have his sentence increased, and it was. And we um, then appealed to the High Court to try to restore his original sentence. And that's where um, the arguments were then made in relation to, well, how, how should the court deal with sentencing in relation to Aboriginal offenders or offenders who experience uh, social deprivation The Crown's position um, in the first appeal in their submissions was that um, the case in Fernando was um, 20 years old that um, Mr Bugney had been before the court on numerous occasions and that The fact that um, his past experience might be relevant to sentencing, it shouldn't accrue to him in some way to his credit um, or as a factor for consideration in terms of mitigation given his criminal history and... um, and how old he was. Now, he was only 29 at the time that he committed the offences, so he was still relatively young. A lot of um, a lot of health practitioners would, would say that really, um, particularly male adults, they're, they're still coming into their full maturity in, in their mid-20s, uh, so it's not as if he was that old. But, yeah, the Crown did approach... Um, The Court of Criminal Appeal proceedings on the basis that he shouldn't, um, that that there'd been too much emphasis on that and that the sentence was inadequate.
0: I mean, my sense is that, um, that there is a bit of an appetite these days for the Crown in lots of Australian jurisdictions to exercise that right of appeal against sentence, and that that seems to be... Um, maybe one plank in the sort of law and order debates that we, that we have, that or one tool which um, the state deploys in the course of the sort of law and order push that we see in this day and age in, in our politics?
1: Mm, I think there's been an explosion in Crown Appeals against sentence. Yeah, so it's, it's certainly an aspect of the system that reflects um, a greater emphasis on being punitive um, that seems to be a trend in the, in the popular consciousness and a trend in terms of the way that the system operates.
0: After William Bugmere was re-sentenced in the Court of Criminal Appeal in New South Wales, with his non parole period being increased to five years, he appealed to the High Court. And he argued on two bases that the Court of Criminal Appeal had made an error. First, he argued that in fact the effects of severe social disadvantage, such as the appalling trauma which William Buckmead had experienced in childhood don't necessarily diminish over time. And accordingly, uh, there shouldn't be necessarily a reduction in the extent to which those are taken into account over time as a person is sentenced for a succession of criminal offences. Secondly, uh, there was an argument that there was basis for taking into account uh, Aboriginality and the particular disadvantages experienced by Aboriginal people in the course of sentencing. And I talked to Felicity Graham about the High Court process and about the arguments before the High Court and how they went.
1: The ground of appeal that... uh we raised in the High Court focused on this issue or this finding by the Court of Criminal Appeal that with the passage of time, the extent to which social deprivation in a person's youth and background can be taken into account must diminish. And we were successful in um, displacing that as a matter of principle and the High Court acknowledged that because the effects of profound childhood deprivation do not diminish with the passage of time and do not diminish with repeated offending, it's right to say that you should give full weight to an offender's deprived background in every sentencing decision. Um, The High Court rejected any notion of taking an approach to sentencing that pays particular attention to the Aboriginal identity of an offender and said that an Aboriginal offender's deprived background may mitigate the sentence. Uh, That would otherwise be appropriate, but to the extent that it does mitigate it, it would mitigate it in the same way that the deprived background of a non-Aboriginal offender may mitigate that offender's sentence. And so they took this race-neutral approach uh, and commented about... uh, certainly factors relating to the experience in Aboriginal communities in relation to being surrounded by alcohol abuse and violence and how that might mitigate sentence because an offender's moral culpability is um, less than the culpability of an offender who hasn't had that same experience Um, and looked at those, particularly those issues which were relevant to William's case of... um, of violence and alcohol leaving a mark on your life, um, but didn't go on to deal with a, a broader approach in terms of... ..or a more, rather a more specific approach in terms of how sentencing courts approach Aboriginal offenders. There are still questions in my mind about um, how... Aboriginality should be considered in sentencing and particularly we, where we seem to be following in the footsteps of um, the US and we're in this age of mass imprisonment, where there's um, increasing incarceration and increasing incarceration of Aboriginal people. And we really looked at these issues about, well, what does protection of the community and what does imprisonment as a last resort really mean when it comes to sentencing an Aboriginal offender? We know that there are so many damaging effects um, of over-incarceration, particularly when we consider the intergenerational effects and we look at factors like um, the experience of parental incarceration. So if you look at the juvenile population... Uh, in detention centres across the country, a huge proportion of those kids that are locked up um, have experienced the incarceration of one or more parents, one or both parents, and looking at that as being a factor that in an intergenerational way um, affects people and affects social norms and affects... um, overall how um, criminogenic factors are kind of transferred or impact upon people in a disproportionate way, that seems to suggest that we've got much more work to do in this space. And we know that incarceration is concentrated amongst certain groups. We know that its effects are not spread evenly across our country and our country's citizens um and so when we look at these overrepresentation hotspots or sometimes called postcode communities we need to be thinking more about the widespread social and non- norm changing effects of that concentration of imprisonment and experience of imprisonment and i think much more work needs to go into and it should be on the on the agenda in Australia much more the effects of incarceration in creating and perpetuating a racially defined criminalised underclass in Aboriginal communities because, I mean, we all know the stats and we can say as many times um, that it's a national disgrace, um, the, the over-incarceration of Aboriginal people across our country. but. We need to focus our attention and I think there's still work to be done in sentencing courts and in the development of sentencing principles to address that in a, in a practical way. So I visited William um, at Goulburn Jail where he was um, locked up. He initially was in Broken Hill, as I mentioned, and that's where the offences were committed and at that time he you know, was able to receive visits from his family and so on from... Um, communities in far western New South Wales but after he was moved to Goulburn the only visits he got was from his lawyers. Um, It was just too far away for him to have any family visits which was um, one of the factors or one of the matters that we put on as evidence before the second Court of Criminal Appeal hearing Uh, and he um He was kept up to date in terms of what was happening. He was obviously able to come and appeared in person at the first Court of Criminal Appeal hearing. One of the things that struck me, um, and I hadn't um, been aware of this before, being involved in William's case, but if you're um, an appellant in the High Court or a respondent and you're in custody... There's no way of you appearing in the High Court to hear your case. So William wasn't at the special leave application or at the the full hearing of his case. There's no mechanism to um, bring a person in custody to the court um, for them to be able to hear what the judges are saying, hear what their lawyers are saying, hear what the other side's saying, and that to me seemed, um, well, it was, seemed to be a pretty unfortunate aspect of the case because Williams, obviously, he's the one who's um, going to wear the consequences and the impact is on him, but he's cut out from that uh, level of participation. It's just over to the lawyers in the High Court.
0: After the High Court had found that the Court of Criminal Appeal had made an error in dealing with the prosecution appeal in William Bugmy's case, the matter went back to the Court of Criminal Appeal for another hearing. At that second hearing of the prosecution appeal against the adequacy of the sentence imposed on William Bugmey, the prosecution again demonstrated that his sentence had in fact been manifestly inadequate. But the court didn't go on to impose a higher sentence on William Bugby. An appellate court dealing with a sentencing matter has what's called a residual discretion. This is the right to decide that in all the circumstances, despite that the sentence originally imposed, Was manifestly inadequate or in some other way in error, all the circumstances warrant that no increased sentence be imposed. And in William Bugmey's case, it was significant that he had been assessed as having good prospects of rehabilitation, and it was also significant that he'd been hauled through the justice system, through the Court of Appeal, Court of Criminal Appeal on a Crown Appeal and then to the High Court, and then back. And so no additional sentence was imposed on William Bugme.
1: Look, it still was pretty hard fought. I mean, the practical focus at that point was to try to hold the original sentence that had been imposed in the district court. Uh, and by the time that, that, that those proceedings were being dealt with, William had spent, uh, four years in jail uh, since the offence, uh, still not knowing what his sentence was going to be. And that's a really long time to labour under that uncertainty. Um, where we uh, succeeded in that second appeal was in arguing that um, the residual discretion uh, should be exercised by the court to dismiss the appeal, notwithstanding any error being found. Um, and because it was a Crown appeal, there was that second step that uh, the court had to consider and, and deal with, and that's the point that we went on. So the court decided that the original sentence was manifestly inadequate, it was too lenient, but that given what had happened um in the interim, and also there was a focus on the fact that the Crown had changed their position um, throughout the proceedings at different rungs of the legal system that the court shouldn't ultimately interfere with the sentence and should dismiss the Crown Appeal and that's the basis on which William succeeded there. The hard fought wins in the High Court and the Court of Criminal Appeal may have seemed somewhat pyrrhic victories to William because notwithstanding that original sentence being restored and that there was a finding of special circumstances by the original sentencing judge, Judge Love, um, which meant that his non-parole period was reduced in favour of a longer period on parole. Um, Unfortunately, the parole board never gave William parole and so he served out his entire uh, term of imprisonment still 18 months less than what he would have served um, if we hadn't succeeded in overturning that increased sentence in the, uh, by the first Court of Criminal Appeal, but not released to that parole period, um, which was structured in a way to recognise those factors of social disadvantage and there the needing to be a greater focus on rehabilitation and reintegration in the community with supervision on parole.
0: I asked Felicity Graham about her continuing connection to the work of the Aboriginal Legal Service uh, to Western New South Wales and to William Bugney.
1: So I I have stayed in touch with William and um, he, he has since been released um, I spoke to him just the other day. He's going well at the moment. He's connected with a great organisation that works with former prisoners to reintegrate into the community. Um, yeah, he's he's going along well. He's got quite a creative side. He's a painter, so he's been working away on paintings. And, yeah, I, I hope he keeps going well.
0: I presume it's very hard to pin down um, in in any quantitative or empirical way, how how that disadvantage leads to, um, you know, those criminogenic factors and compounded Mm. intergenerational disadvantage.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that there's a lot to be done in terms of um, the evidence base for these arguments and it's exciting to see that at the ALS um, in New South Wales, they have a... Um, a Bug Me project going on where they are um, preparing data about communities and joining um, the dots between census data and um, the experience of communities and being able to, in an evidence-based way, um, really frame uh, the experience and, and have that as an accessible database. The practitioners and it, it does seem that there is one of the things to come from the High Court's decision in Bugme is the need for legal practitioners to really focus their minds on how um, they're going to evidence the experience of their client, their individual client, how they're going to evidence the experience of their client um, in the context of their community, their Aboriginal community or if they're not an Aboriginal offender, their community and then, link that into the sentencing principles um, and perhaps push the the dialogue and the and the principles further, but with that evidence base and that's really difficult um in many situations I Now, mean, as you know the bulk of sentencing happens at the magistrate level uh, it's a fast paced environment um, where it's there's not um, a huge amount of opportunities to run a case in a way, in a really fulsome way. Um, but to the extent that we can, we need to be making sure we're giving effect to um, the the life stories of our clients and making sure that their stories are are heard and then... Really plugged into the the different sentencing principles that can be to their benefit. Yeah, I'm still very much um, connected to my colleagues at the Aboriginal Legal Service, and they from time to time brief me, and I head out to Griffiths and out in out in Western New South Wales and all around regional uh, New South Wales and. Yeah, I, lo- I love still getting back out to those big skies and doing work out that way. It's um, it's great, and you can see, um, es- especially keeping on working with um, Aboriginal clients, that they they have a really good understanding about this case of Williams, and many times of visit a client in the cells to discuss their case and they'll start telling me about their life experience, their family life, their community, and they'll quickly follow it up with, um, oh, Miss, I want the Bug Me Act in my case. Will the judge use the Bug Me Act? Um, and so words words out there. And I think one of the, the really powerful things about William's case is that not only did he have a really keen appreciation for the importance of it, but um, he and and many other people um, who face criminal charges understand that central idea of the case, that their personal story is really significant and shouldn't be overlooked. And, yeah, I I get a big smile on my face whenever um, clients ask for the Bug Me Act uh, in their case, and then we go on to develop that argument for them and make those submissions to the judge...
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of In That Case. Once again, you can find it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and on the website www.inthatcasepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at at Townsend Joel C. I look forward to joining you for the next episode of In That Case.